0: Here we go again with another Humble Perspectives, it's good to be able to share these with you. Today I want to start out in a little different way with a portion of a song by Chuck Girard from his worship album, Voice of the Wind. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. We hunger and we thirst, O Lord, for purity. Our hearts cry out to the living God, as the deer would pant for the water. So our soul, it longs for you, as the deer would pant through the water, so our soul would long for you, Jesus. I do hope that my reading from my book for such a time as this would uh, cultivate or stir up a deeper appetite for God, for his presence, for his righteousness, for his work in your life. I know reading back over my story keeps stirring me up, saying, Lord, I don't want to stop. I want to keep growing in knowing you and fellowshipping with you and being useful in your kingdom. May God help us. This week I'm reading from chapter 13. It's titled, Changes. Ironically, perhaps, when I sent out the email this morning to an email list that I have for humble perspectives listeners, I uh, sent with it. A link to a song from back in 1972 that was recorded by Love Song, a song called Changes. And then I opened the book today and realized that the chapter I'm going to read today is Changes. So I don't know what that means, but it was of interest to me. So here we go. After we had lived in the fourplex a few months, Dan Dreesen made an appointment to meet with me in a sitting area we would made in our basement. First, Dan complimented me on my knowledge of the Bible. Then he informed me that I was making it difficult for others in the household to relate to me by inserting my knowledge of the Bible into most of my conversations. He pointed out that often when I returned to the Bible, referred to the Bible, or quoted from it, I would preface my statements with the words, "My Bible says." Dan told me that this practice virtually stopped others from talking. After all, he said, how are they to argue with your Bible?" While Dan was speaking, tears came to my eyes. He asked me why I had tears. I had no answer. He suggested that the tears might indicate defensiveness because I was reluctant to be corrected. Later I realized that he was partly right. I was defensive about being corrected. In time, though, I came also to understand that at a deeper level, I believed that I had to be perfect if I was to be accepted by others. Rather than experience Dan's correction as an expression of his love and commitment to serve me, I feared that he and others, would reject me. Dan did not stop with pointing out my problem. He also set up a way to help me change. He expressly forbade me to quote the Bible at our common meals and in our household activities. Because of my commitment to submit to spiritual authority, I agreed, although not without hurt and fear. After all, I had deliberately cultivated knowledge of the Bible. I had trained myself to speak the word as often as possible. I had never considered the possibility that my brothers and sisters would be put off by it and see me as weird. I had not considered it in spite of the fact that I had many times shut down conversations with my wife because she felt like I was using the Bible as a weapon against her. Over the next couple months, I often had to squeeze my knee to keep from quoting the Bible in our gatherings. Quite often I felt I had nothing to say, if I couldn't quote the Bible. And Dan was not nice about it either. At our common meals, I distinctly remember him starting conversations on such topics as creation versus evolution and faith versus works. I saw this matter only as an exercise in obedience on my part. I was happily stunned when a few months later I realized that God had used Dan's prohibition to set me free from a religious affectation that not only put off other people, but one that had hindered me from relaxing in my humanity, from enjoying a measure of simple human life, and from te- deeply connecting with others. One day, I simply realized that I had been freed from an unperceived weight. I found myself rejoicing in being a human being, in my life as a man on earth. I found that I could quit trying so hard to be spiritual for a long time afterwards. I often spontaneously exclaimed, it's a good life. Ironically, about a year later, the Dreesons moved into a home a few blocks away. He and I both had begun to relate to Larry Alberts for further training. Dan called me aside one evening during a gathering at his home. He said Larry had been pointing out to him that he was deficient in his knowledge of scripture. Larry had told Dan that he needed to eat scripture, to sleep scripture, and to speak scripture. Dan told me that he had been convicted of of his need to change. And then he began to apologize to me for having forbidden me to quote the Bible. I stopped him. Dan, I said, I can't tell you how grateful to God I am that you were not under Larry's care last year when you were working directly with me. I am so much freer as a man since God used you to deal with the way I had been misusing scripture. How amazing that God would love me enough to leave my brother weak in an area of his life long enough that he could help me in an area of my life in which I was too strong." Only then did God begin to strengthen my brother in his area of weakness. In late October, that fall of 1977, Hal took me to lunch at Curran's Restaurant on 42nd Street and Nicollet Avenue. The lunch was okay. But the conversation was something else again. For about 20 minutes Hal told me specific ways in which I was doing a terrific job as his servant. I listened gratefully and very uncomfortably as well because my parents had made it a policy not to brag on their children lest we become proud. I had never experienced someone bragging on me to this extent. Then Hal said, You do all the work of a servant well, better than I could have asked. Looking directly into my eyes, he went on. There's only one problem. You don't have a servant's heart. Tears shot from my eyes and I choked up. I knew that God was speaking to me through how. Finally, I got out my questions. What is a servant's heart? How do I get one? I don't know, you don't have it," Hal replied, his voice kind but straightforward. I left that lunch in inner turmoil. I began to cry out to God to show me what a servant's heart was and to change me. The change came, but not suddenly. There were three specific incidents over the next several months that represent milestones in that change of heart. However, looking back, I can see that the change actually began that day because God had begun to break something in me. The very feeling of being helpless to understand what was being asked of me, let alone know what to do about it, began to break my dependence on my own abilities and gifts. To put it scripturally, which I can do now, I was confronted with my weakness, in this case an inappropriate self-reliance so that I could become a candidate for God's strength to be manifest through me 2 Corinthians 12:7-10 The first incident occurred a few weeks later after Hal, Jack and Larry had returned from a conference with leaders of other ecumenical covenant communities with which we were connected A day or two after returning the three men met in the conference room next to my office On this occasion, they left the door open during a part of their meeting, and I could not help overhearing their discussion concerning the need to teach the members of our community to honor and to serve as part of our community culture. They talked about teaching people to stand up when an older person came into the room, and they talked about practical ways in which members in the community could serve their leaders. As they talk, a war arose in my mind. These leaders were Catholic. I was Protestant. I imagined them expecting me to do things comparable to kissing the Pope's ring. In spite of my familiarity with the Bible, I didn't know the command, "You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord, Leviticus 1932. I had not yet taken note of principles that Paul taught, that those who receive spiritual wealth from others should share their material wealth in return, and that leaders were to be shown honor as well as respect. Romans 15.27, Galatians 6.6, 6, Thessalonians 5.12-13, 1 Timothy 5.17. I resisted the idea of showing visible signs of respect and honor even though it is clearly biblical to do so. For several days I struggled with fear, with pride and with rebellion about being a Protestant under the authority of Catholics. Then on Saturday morning, I went to my office to get alone with God. I cried out earnestly for God's help. In effect, I cried, Get me out of here! As I prayed, I had a vivid mental picture of two streams of water with a narrow strip of land separating them. I saw myself trying to walk with a foot in each stream, straddling a strip of land in between. I was aware that the stream where my right foot stood represented the Catholic ecumenical covenant communities while my left foot was in the other stream, which represented those covenant communities led by the new wine teachers, such as the Community of Hope in Lancaster, Ohio, of which my friend John Meadows was a member. I saw that both streams were flowing in the same direction. I realized that I felt I would be safe in the new wine stream and that I had conditioned my commitment to my leaders in the Catholic ecumenical stream on their relationship with the new wine teachers. Then the Holy Spirit spoke very clearly to my spirit. He said, I want you to be in one stream or the other. I will bless you and use you in either. I prefer for you to be in this one, and I knew he meant the Catholic ecumenical stream. Along with this word came faith from the Lord. I literally lifted up my left foot as though removing it from the new wine stream, then I physically moved so as to dive head first into the Catholic ecumenical stream on the right stopping myself before I plunged my head onto the floor. That settled the issue in my heart and mind. I had decided to trust God to take care of me and to use the leaders He had placed over me. If they taught something or asked me to do something I believed to be unscriptural, then we would have to work it out together. I was not leaving. Ironically, just a few days later, the third new wine tape of the month arrived in the mail. A message by Don Basham titled, Serving and Being Served. Don presented clear scriptural teaching on the subject of serving. His message confirmed the word of the Lord to me, but after my encounter with God, it was not the basis for my security in the community to which God had called me. Later, I learned from John Meadows that some new wine communities were emphasizing serving leaders far more than our community ever did. In fact, some of those communities were overemphasizing this practice to such a degree that it would produce negative repercussions several years later. The second incident came not long afterward. Don Schwager, a servant from the Word of God community in Ann Arbor, Michigan, came to visit us. All of us who had been designated servants in the Servants of the Lord community met with him for several hours of teaching. Don taught us about deacons and servanthood from the Bible and from the writings of the early Church Fathers of the Church. He also taught us many practical attitudes and behaviors that servants needed to develop. For example, Don talked about the need to wait, that is, to be available to serve when called upon. He told us that a servant must learn to anticipate needs, but also learn not to jump ahead and initiate actions without authorization. He said we needed to learn to wait in peace, eager to serve, without being anxious about our inactivity. This really spoke to me. When I had times with no specific assignment to fulfill, I would often read a book while I waited for Hal to call on me. But if someone came down the stairs, my instinct was to hide the book and act like I was studying the Bible or like I was busy with some other, quote, acceptable activity. I had not understood that being available and ready when my current assignments had been fulfilled was in itself acceptable service. The third incident occurred on a Thursday morning in the spring of 1968. I had come into my office a while before Hal arrived. As I waited, I opened my Bible and began to read the parables of the sower and of the growing seed in Mark 4. 1 to 9, 13 to 20, 26 to 29. With no effort on my part, an outline for a teaching popped into my mind, and I knew it was a good one. I also knew that there was no speaker scheduled for the outreach prayer meeting that evening, and I strongly believed that the Lord had given me the teaching for that prayer meeting. Quickly, I wrote out the outline, took it upstairs, and asked our secretary, Suzanne Paris to type it up. When she finished, I took the outline into Hal's office, laid it on the center of his desk where he could not miss seeing it, and then I went downstairs, nearly trembling with anticipation. It had been a long time since I had had the opportunity to preach or teach, and never in the servants. This was the time, I was sure. I heard Hal come in, greet the secretaries as usual, and then go into his office. A few minutes later he called me on the intercom to say that he was ready for our morning meeting. I went up into his office and sat down in my chair, trying not to grin. Hal said, Where did this outline come from? The Lord gave it to me this morning, I replied. This is good, Hal declared. I am going to teach it tonight. I froze up inside. I fought to keep a straight face. My face felt like it was on fire. Still, I tried hard not to show the disappointment and the hurt that I felt. I could barely wait to get out of that room. It was a long day, and then I had to go to the prayer meeting. As Hal taught my message, I could hardly stand the feelings of jealousy, anger, and resentment that were boiling inside of me. I went home to a nearly sleepless night, wrestling with my thoughts and emotions. The next morning, as I drove down Pillsbury Avenue toward the office, just as I was turning left onto 48th Street, I cried out loud to the Lord, What do you want from me? To my surprise, he spoke very clearly, again one of those times when his voice could not have been plainer even if he had spoken aloud. The Lord said, I want you to take everything I have given you, your gifts, your abilities, your training, and your heritage, and use them to help Hal be the best man of God he can be. With that word, I was free. Joy flooded me. I could think of nothing better to do with my life than to serve God by serving Hal. At last, I was beginning to see that God was indeed giving me a servant's heart. A few months later, Hal was asked to move his family to St. Paul so that he could lead a district of the community over there. We both took it for granted that our family would move also. Patricia and I started looking for a house in St. Paul, and before long, we put an offer on a duplex and it was accepted. Because our income was insufficient for us to qualify for a loan, a single brother, Brad By, a member of the community whom we hardly knew, applied for the loan with us. And was to share ownership with us. Plans changed, however, before we could close on the house. One morning in early June, Hal began to tell me that the head coordinators had been praying about me and discussing my future in the community. They had come to the conclusion that my primary calling was to be a pastoral leader. Consequently, they believed that I should begin to prepare to become a coordinator or elder rather than to continue as house servant. Howe said that in order for me to develop as a leader, they thought it best for me to remain in Minneapolis where I would become a district head or the leader of a small area in the newly formed East Central District. Howe said that I would need to find a new job in order to support my family. He also informed me that Larry Alberts would give me pastoral oversight and train me to be a coordinator. I have no way to describe the anguish I felt upon hearing this news. I left the office, but I was in no condition to go home and talk about this change with Patricia. I drove over to a secluded place along the Minnehaha Parkway and parked. Leaving the car, I walked several yards to a tree where I sat down heavy in heart and mentally in turmoil. Although from a human perspective there was more prestige and honor in being an elder than a servant, my heart felt as though I was being demoted. Serving Hal had become my joy and my ambition. I struggled once again to surrender my plans to the Lord and to embrace the steps He had planned for my life. It took about 24 hours to work it through, but by God's grace I became able to embrace the change. A few days later, Larry Albert suggested that I talk to Chuck Downs, who, like me, was a fairly new member of the servants. Larry told me that Chuck owned a screen printing business and needed to hire someone. Therefore, I called Chuck and made an appointment to meet him at First Image, his shop out in Plymouth, a northwestern suburb of Minneapolis. I found Chuck to be a jovial, friendly man. I knew nothing at all about screen printing. Therefore, as we began to get acquainted, Chuck took me around the shop explaining to me the printing process and showing me the equipment. First we went into the art room with its drawing table and dark room. There Chuck briefly demonstrated how he would take artwork and transfer each separate color into a positive photo image, the opposite of photo negatives, onto transparent film. He then picked up a positive and a photosensitive emulsion coated screen consisting of fabric mesh, usually nylon, tightly stretched onto a wood frame, and he placed them on a light table. As the light passed through the blank areas on the film, the emulsion hardened in the screen. However, because the light did not pass through the positive image on the film, the emulsion did not harden on those areas. Next Chuck sprayed the screen with a gentle stream of water, washing out the emulsion that had not hardened. Which had left a negative image in the screen. After that I watched one of the printers place a similar screen over a piece of plastic that he had laid on a table. He poured red ink into the mesh. Then he pulled a rubber squeegee blade across the screen. The squeegee pushed the ink through the open mesh of the negative image, leaving a positive image on the plastic below. Using this method, one is able to print images one color at a time onto a variety of materials, including vinyl, paper, metal, plastic, glass, cloth, or wood. In addition to tables where this hand screening was done, Chuck showed me the two printing presses into which screens could be placed. These machines accomplished the squeegee process mechanically. There were several racks in the shop on which the printing material was placed. After it had been screened in order for it to dry there was also a cutting machine for cutting and trimming the paint print jobs incredibly I left first image that day with a job Chuck needed to focus on getting new business and he needed to do the artwork and make the positives he hired me to oversee and manage all the printing work and also to do the shipping and delivery it would be my responsibility to schedule the work to oversee the printers and to get the jobs out on time. I walked into the shop with absolutely no knowledge of screen printing. I walked out the newly hired shop manager. One of my first responsibilities was to learn all the processes that i had been hired to oversee. Chuck trained me himself. During the training process we hired another brother with some printing experience. When this brother saw the work on which I was learning, he told me that in any other shop I would not touch such complex jobs without five years or more experience. It sounds foolish for Chuck to have hired me to manage his shop without practical experience in the work. It does not sound less foolish that I took the job. However, Larry had recommended me to Chuck and he had recommended the job to me. Such was our commitment to one another as brothers and such was our trust that God would lead us through leaders that Chuck and I acted on Larry's recommendations. It worked well. First image had been in financial difficulty due to moisture problems in a new building that Chuck had leased and because he was overextended as a result of trying to do too much of the work himself. The Lord blessed our obedience. Over the course of the next two years that I worked for Chuck, the business grew, the debt was repaid, and the profit margin increased substantially. Soon after I quit, Chuck was able to sell 90% of First Image to a larger company for an excellent price. The Lord used my time working with Chuck, not only to provide income for my family, but also to teach me some important life lessons. For example, I learned that I derived satisfaction from finishing tasks task. However, I had not learned to enjoy the work itself. I discovered that I got frustrated if there was never a time to be finished. Whenever we finished one job in the shop and delivered it to the customer, several other orders were still in process, and there were yet others to be started. At least there better be if we were to meet expenses and make money. If our company was going to prosper, we needed to have a continual flow of work, but my desire was to finish a job and then quit for a while so I could do something I liked to do, which to me mostly meant reading, listening to music, watching a movie, in a word, to escape from real life. I began to realize that life was not so much about finishing as about faithfully doing. Life is not so much about arriving, but about the journey. In my assignments as husband, father, and pastor, It is rare to have times when there are not ongoing jobs to be continued. I saw that if I did not learn to enjoy the process of working, I was not going to have much fulfillment, and I was going to have a lot of frustration. Although I did not immediately see the connection to my need to finish things, gradually I began to understand the importance of the Sabbath principle. God established a pattern for man on which in which on one day each week we are to say, in effect, we have finished our work. Thank you, Lord, for what has been accomplished. For one day a week we are to set aside our unfinished jobs, and with thanksgiving to God enjoy what we have been able to do in the previous six days. As we do, God refreshes us and helps us to re-engage our tasks with energy, and often with new insight into the work before us. I knew this in my head. Sadly, even now, all these years later, I still have a difficult time practicing it in real life. This was my own fault. I simply have not made a firm enough decision to set aside a specified time for rest and for giving thanks, and then to honor that time. Instead, I tend to continue in the rush of life until life runs over me. In our American culture, we tend to fill even the weekends and our days off with frantic activity, often calling it recreation. However, I can see God's wisdom in establishing a Sabbath day for everyone. I remember as a child growing up in central Ohio that Sunday was honored as a day of rest in our whole culture. In our small town, one filling station and one pharmacy would be open on Sunday in case of emergencies. However, except for the churches, the town shut down. No one worked at their regular jobs, except those who provided essential services. In our home, the big question was whether or not it was acceptable to play ball with the neighbor boys rather than to read or take a nap. There was strong encouragement in the servants of the Lord to honor the Sabbath principle by by making the Lord's Day a day of rest and celebration. Although we had no community rule requiring it, a number of the households followed the example set by other communities such as the Word of God in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the People Praise in South Bend, Indiana, where they had actually developed the custom of opening the Lord's Day on Saturday evening in the households with a family ceremony involving prayers, readings, lighting candles, and sharing bread, wine, and cheese. These communities also developed a short ceremony to end the Sabbath day on Sunday evening. The ceremonies were of course modeled on the Sabbath day ceremonies customarily practiced in Jewish homes on Friday and Saturday evenings. After we moved away from the servants, where honoring the Lord's day as a Sabbath was encouraged, I found it much harder to build such a custom into my own life and into our family's life. Going against the tide of the culture to honor the Sabbath is much easier if several households decide, decide to include it in their own pattern of life together, I have found. The Lord began to teach me another life lesson directly through Chuck. He started me teaching Chuck started teaching me to screen print on a big job for the Music Land stores, a job that would take us over three months to complete. Musicland had contracted us to print 500 each of four cartoon character figures, Spider-Man, Mickey Mouse, Big Bird, and Winnie the Pooh. On a large press, we needed to print the figures onto sheets of a thick plastic material about three feet high and one foot wide. Printing the exact image on each sheet on both sides only reversed so that once printed they could be die cut into the shape of the figure. Each figure had three to five colors, therefore we had to print each sheet from six to ten times in order to, print pre- in order to print on both sides. Excuse me. All these had to be measured to exact specifications in order to align the colors properly. Chuck taught me to print using an excellent discipleship method. 1. He modeled the work for me. 2. He watched me work. Three, he had me do the work and give feedback on the results. And four, he finally released me to do the work. Chuck had me watch him work on the three color Spider-Man job. I did a little printing on that job, but only under close supervision. Next we did the four color Mickey Mouse figures. This time Chuck taught me how to set up the press and he watched me closely while I did much of the printing. Then we started on the five color Winnie the Pooh figure. This time Chuck watched me set up the press, making sure that I had it set up correctly. However, once the printing was going smoothly, he left me unsupervised for longer and longer periods of time. Then when we started to print the Big Bird figure, Chuck left me largely on my own, only checking on me occasionally, especially when I asked for his help print, I had to pick up one sheet of plastic at a time from a stack on my right. I would then place the sheet onto the press table in exactly the right spot marked by pieces of plastic called registration that I had taped to the table to mark the lower right hand corner and the two edges extending from that corner. Once the sheet was in place, I would press a button. The machine would lower the screen frame already inked and pass the squeegee across the fabric. After the squeegee had passed, the machine would lift the frame and I would pick up the sheet, placing it on my left onto a conveyor belt that took it through the drying machine. At first it was exciting to work with much less supervision. However, the work soon became routine as I passed sheet after sheet through the press on the belt. 520 sheets, six to ten times each. I began to get bored. I learned to work with the press set on automatic a function that automatically raised and lowered the screen and controlled the movement of the squeegee according to a timer after a while i began to experiment with various speeds at last i finished the first side of big bird then one evening i started printing the first color on the other side of the sheet of plastic the next day i started to print the second color Significantly, these two colors did not touch each other at any point, but were to be connected into a single image later by the colors applied afterward. About halfway through the run of the 520 sheets, I began to set the press speed faster, and then faster, and then faster. I am really getting good at this, I thought, grabbing up sheet after sheet slamming the each onto the press table and then thrusting it onto the dryer belt whoa i discovered that i had knocked one of the registration markers loose my heart sank i could only hope that i had discovered the problem right after knocking the registration loose but i didn't know were the colors out of alignment my eyes couldn't detect any problem however there would be no way to know for sure until i started applying the connecting colors at that point, the alignment or lack of it would be revealed. Disaster. A few days later when I applied the next color, it was clear. The stripes on big bird stockings were not aligned on 50 to 75 pieces. My heart sank. I had to call Chuck in and show him what I'd done. As I talked to Chuck and as he looked over the damage, over and over, I berated myself aloud. Chuck stopped looking at the work and glared at me. Stop, he said. There's no value in focusing on yourself. We have a problem. Problems are an opportunity for problem solving. We need to focus on finding a solution. Chuck never did reprimand me for my foolishness, which had caused the problem. Rather, he corrected my attitude and response. Problems are an opportunity for problem solving. That maxim has stuck with me over the years. However, I'm still trying to learn to approach life that way. My first response when I've made a mistake is usually to chew myself out. And regrettably, that is often what I've tended to do first when my wife or children make a mistake too. These days, I often catch myself quickly When I'm dealing with someone besides myself, with my wife or my kids, grandkids, sometimes I catch myself before I've even spoken, but I'm still working to make the lesson the Lord gave me through Chuck that day be a way of life. Thankfully, Chuck did find a way to salvage most of the damage work on Big Bird. In addition to what I learned while actually working at First Image, I also had a few memorable encounters with the Lord while driving the 20 miles each way to and from the job. One encounter took place as I was driving through the small tunnel on I-94 West near downtown Minneapolis. While serving Hal, I had made a settled decision about being in the ecumenical community instead of the community connected to the five teachers in the new wine stream. Even so, from time to time I still had questions concerning the Lord's purpose for placing me in a part of the body of Christ where my comfort zone was often stretched. On one particular day when I was wrestling with this once more, as I entered the tunnel, the Lord spoke clearly to my spirit. What if I have you here to be a bridge builder? What if I want to use you as a relational connection between two parts of my body? Besides. In the new wine stream your gifts are a dime a dozen. Here your gifts are more needed. That word settled something in me. I did not have to try to be somebody or something. The Lord knew what I needed and he knew how and where to use me. All I needed to do was be faithful where he placed me in his body. A few months later I received another significant word from the Lord while driving to work. A word that brought adjustment to my way of relating to God's people. Patricia had been having an ongoing battle with fear. She and I had not been able to get victory. Finally, I invited our district leadership team, Larry Alberts, Dan and Joyce Dreesen, and Anna Brombach, to come over on a Sunday evening to pray with us, or to pray with her to be more honest. After we had prayed a while, it became clear that God's agenda for that evening was different than mine. Someone gently suggested that it was I whom the Lord wanted to set free that night and asked if I was open to their ministry. I replied that I was. They asked if there were things in my life from which I wanted the Lord to free me. I named several areas of frequent temptation and some besetting sins that tended to trip me up. And they did pray for me in those areas, a little perfunctorily it seemed to me. Then after a time of waiting before the Lord. Larry told me that each of them had needed to be freed from certain strongholds associated with their church tradition, which in all their cases was Roman Catholic. They explained that along with much that was good in their heritage, the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that religious strongholds also built up over time, and that through these strongholds the devil manipulated and used people in the church for his own ends. See 2 Corinthians ten three 3-5. They believed that the Holy Spirit was revealing some strongholds associated with my holiness heritage, namely, judgmentalism and legalism. That seemed accurate to me, so they prayed against these strongholds. They took authority over the work of the enemy, especially his influence on my attitudes and words, and asked the Lord to set me free. The prayer was straightforward, unemotional, and actually rather brief. There were no demonic manifestations, I had no spectacular experience, I had no particular awareness of any change, but I did have peace about the prayer. I simply decided to trust the Lord to do what needed to be done. The next morning I picked up my friend Ron Wolf, who worked at the Sauter Furniture Factory about a mile from our shop. I dropped him off at the factory and then just as I was turning out of the parking lot back onto the street to head over to First Image, the Lord spoke to my spirit. I have freed you from a militant spirit and I'm giving you the spirit of a farmer. I want you to lay down your sword and your shield toward the body of Christ and pick up a plow. Immediately I remembered a scene from a Saturday morning movie that I'd watched several years earlier with some children whom Patricia and I were babysitting. The movie was about a boy who was approximately 12 years old. His parents were divorced and were more interested in their own lives than in the life of their son. For most of his life, the boy had been left in boarding schools, and he would become angry and bitter. The story concerned a summer that the boy spent on his grandfather's farm. Patiently, the grandfather loved on the boy and worked with him, until at last the boy opened up his heart to his grandfather. In the scene that came vividly to my mind that Monday morning, The boy and his grandfather were sitting side by side under a huge oak at the edge of a freshly plowed field near Summer's Inn. The boy looked up and said, Grandpa, when I grow up, I want to be a farmer just like you. The grandfather reached down, picked up a handful of dirt from the field, lifted it to his lips, and took a small bit onto his tongue. A good farmer, he replied, loves the soil. He can taste it and know its strengths and weaknesses. Immediately, I knew what the Lord was saying to me. Because of judgmentalism and legalism, I was not making deep connections with many brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, especially those whose theological heritages I did not trust. It was as though I shielded myself against their insights into God's truth and ways, while trying to correct their erroneous thinking using the scriptures like a sword. The Lord was telling me that He had delivered me from the need to protect myself from His people. I knew that from that time forward it would be up to me to choose by the Spirit to love my brothers and sisters, to choose to not be afraid of their heritages or to be put off by by their different beliefs. But rather, I needed to be willing to taste the differences and thus discover the good. If I was going to serve God's people, it had to be with the love and patience of a farmer, not with the violent spirit of a warrior. The Lord used Patricia's battle with fear to sneak up on me. God blessed me with another life-changing encounter during that season as well, although it was not related to my work at First Image. Jack Bromback had asked me to speak at a camp sponsored by a small community in Staples, Minnesota during the Labor Day weekend. A few days after Jack talked with me, I discovered that my friend Bill Bagby and his wife would be going to the camp too and Bill asked if I would like to ride with them. Although I didn't know it, the Staples Group had contacted Jack previously and had asked that he send Bill as the speaker. For some reason, Jack and the other head coordinators thought I should go instead. However, a leader from the Staples Group had contacted Bill directly and asked him to come. Bill didn't know that they had approached Jack about sending him first, and neither of us knew that our leaders had thought it best for Bill not to speak at all. After a pleasant three-hour drive on the Friday before Labor Day, Bill, his wife Nan, and I arrived at the camp at about 4 p.m. Soon after I arrived, and Bill had introduced me to his friends there, the facts became clear. They were looking for Bill, not for me. After some discussion, they asked me to speak only once at the first meeting to be held at 8 o'clock that evening. Finally, everyone arrived and the meeting started late. We had a time of worship and song, and then a break. Afterward, I was given less than 10 minutes in which to speak, and then I was done with my ministry there for that weekend. I would have headed home, except that I had ridden with the Bagbys, who would not be leaving until Monday. During the break between the singing and my mini-message, I met Bill Lemke. We talked for about ten minutes upon meeting, enough for me to learn that he and his wife Lou were members of the Daystar Ministries, a non-denominational charismatic community headquartered in Minneapolis, and that they were serving at a Daystar discipleship school called Eden, located near Weyerhauser, Wisconsin. Bill had a background in the Christian and Missionary Alliance churches, a denomination with a number of similarities to the Churches of Christ and Christian Union, and I had preached in a few CMA churches while in Bible college. After my short message, one of the camp leaders introduced the Limkeys to the whole group, saying that they had a ministry of praying for people to be freed. Bill and Lou began their first prayer session about 11 o'clock that Friday night. I don't remember how they introduced the prayer, But I do know that I was the first one to respond to their invitation. I remember Bill praying for me, although I cannot remember any specifics of his prayer. I do remember that it seemed like he read my heart and my history. I know he prayed something about my relationship with my dad. His prayer obviously directed by the Holy Spirit, since I had told him little if anything about our relationship. What I do remember with absolute clarity is what the Lord said to my spirit while Bill was praying. The Lord said, You are not to look for acceptance and understanding from your dad. Look to me for acceptance and understanding. It is your responsibility to love your dad, and to honor him, and to serve him every time you have opportunity. Wow, this simple, straightforward word from the Lord, along with the prayers, change me. From that time on, I can testify I was free to love dad unconditionally. I was able to release him from the demand that he accept me and that he understand me. After that prayer session, I was able to listen respectfully to dad to receive truth from him. Even when he said things that seemed critical and harsh, I was enabled not to argue or to take offense. The work the work the Lord did in me during Bill Limsky's prayer was a big step toward fulfillment of part of the word from Jeremiah 19, 319 which I had received before moving to Richland Center. You shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. It proved to be the turning point in my relationship with my dad. The changes became manifest gradually. but. They were permanent. And that concludes chapter 13. Man, I'm thankful for the changes that God was working in my life and continues to work in my life, but started so significantly in that period of time. I hope you'll join me again when I read chapter 14, titled Discovering Roots.